Welcome back to the Stronger Medicine Podcast. Today is episode number seven, and I'm joined by Aaron Stark. In March 2018, in response to the Parkland shooting in Florida, Aaron wrote a piece and shared it on social media, intended for family and close friends to see. In this piece, he revealed that he was himself almost a school shooter. The only thing stopping him short was an act of kindness that was displayed by his very close friend at the time. Since writing this piece and it going viral, Aaron has been speaking openly about the experiences that he had with a traumatic and violent childhood and the processes that he went through psychologically that brought him to this place where he intended to carry out such a shooting. I personally came across Aaron when I saw his seven or so minute TED talk, which has now garnered millions of views. Thousands of other people have also reached out to Aaron and he has set up a group, You Are Not Alone. He's been contacted by people all over the world who've been sharing their own difficulties and dark experiences with him. And while he finds this overwhelming to a degree, he clearly sees this as a very meaningful way to use his time. Today, I was really privileged to be able to speak to Aaron about the experiences that he went through and to get a really clear insight into how people can be pushed to such an extreme and how actually this could happen to any of us. I don't want to take too much of your time with an introduction here and I think it's worthwhile just getting straight into the conversation. So without any further delay, I give you Aaron Stark. Welcome to the Stronger Medicine Podcast. I am joined by Aaron Stark. I have the privilege today of speaking to him. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing pretty fantastic here today. It's a snowy day, but um, it's my day off, so I'm just nice and relaxing. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, as I've said, thank you so much for coming on. The first question that I've had just before we even hit record, actually, I was thinking about this, was you've shared your story with so many people. Obviously, your TED Talk was has gone viral. It's, it's an unbelievable video. And you've also done a number of different conversations. You've been on um, even um, Good Morning Britain and other TV stations. You, the the fact that you're talking about what seems to be the darkest point in your life on a repeated basis how how is that for you i mean how does that feel doing that um it's, again and again that it, that is a really good question it is it's at one on one side it's the most powerful and cathartic and intense thing i've ever done and it's it's the response and the effect that it, me talking seems to have had has been just mind blowing. Mm. And on the other side, it is when I was growing up, I could, if, in my story, I talk about how I felt I was isolated, felt like I was uh, separate and I didn't feel human. This is slightly the same way. I feel kind of like a unicorn. Um, it's diff- good because it's a positive. Not, I, I'm not a monster. I'm a unicorn. So it's, it's, it's different. Like it's, it's a very positive thing. Instead of people coming to me like, oh, you're broken, you're, you're mustard. And now it's everybody wanting to come and talk to me about stuff. But honestly, it is, sometimes it's a bit to adjust. I, I, I tell my wife all the time that the hardest part in my own head is that when you sit around with your friends all the time and you'll sit and talk about your time growing up and your, and what happened in high school, nobody ever wants to send a camera crew, you know, no one, no one wants to film it. And that kind of stuff, especially since it's just, I, I talk about it all the time, and it, but it's just me. 
I'm just honest. I, I don't have, I didn't create a story to, that I'm doing. Like I didn't, I didn't make this, you know, like it's not, it'd be different if it was like my, my creation and like here, I want to show everybody and I'm so proud of it. No, I'm just talking about my own life. And the only reason I'm doing it is because from the beginning of the very first time I talked about it, I, I only talked about it to be to talked about with my family. So to start with it, when I came out with my story, I, we were sitting around the day after Parkland. And we were, it was literally the day after the Parkland, um, the Stoneman Douglas shooting in Florida. Um, and it was, I believe it was like February 14th or 15th last year, right after Valentine's day. And, um, we were sitting with my oldest daughter and my wife and we're having a tearful discussion about how could someone ever get to that point and how could it ever happen? And I knew how you got to that point. I have been there. And so I went to the back of my house and just wrote a Facebook post and it was just supposed to be for my family. Like I, I expected I get the same thing I got on every other Facebook post, like uh, 10 likes or shares or the comment or two, and it would just disappear into the ether like every other post. By the next morning, it had a couple hundred thousand shares and likes. And I had, my wife was like, well, you people seem to be connecting with this. Maybe you should send it to the reporter that we like. And so there was a local news reporter that I sent it to. And the next day there was a camera crew at my house and that video got 17 million views on, on their Facebook channel. It's unbelievable. And instantly. I went, I went from sitting down doing nothing, sitting on my couch to talking on national TV about this kind of stuff in the space of like a week. That's just unreal. It must be so and, surreal. And it's really surreal. But the biggest thing is the response because mm. it's me talking about it. Yeah. I, I it's, I'm, took a long time for me to even be like proud or happy at all about what I'm talking about because it's a lot. But what I am proud about is the response from everybody that the effect it's had people from all over the world came to me like immediately, like India, Pakistan, New Zealand, Australia, Sweden, every single state in the U S that, and it was the same. You could take a message from somebody from Pakistan and a message from somebody from Ireland and then a message from somebody from Texas and they are the same. It's the same thing. It's this all, this pain happened to me and all this damage happened to me. And I haven't been able to talk about it before. And now I'm going to talk about it. And if I can inspire them to talk about it, then I'm going to keep going. I, if I can help even one person get out of that darkness, then I'm going to keep talking about it. So that's why you see a ton of interviews with me. Cause I, I don't, I never stop answering the questions. People get scared about talking about it. I spent my life hating myself. I spent my life as the monster and if me talking about that can help someone else figure out they're not a monster and they are worth it, then okay. Mm, I mean, that that does really come through in how you speak about it. It's it's clearly just such a huge amount of experience and and things that you've gone through, which enable you just to just answer as you mentioned any question about any part of this. And you mentioned about feeling like a unicorn. I can completely see how from the perspective of the the amount of exposure and the the people coming to you the emails must be pouring through but i guess uh-huh. that just says to that just speaks to how how many people in the world are going through just such similar things and in a way you're, yeah. you're not a unicorn um, in that way i suppose people are just yeah, seeing uh, well, themselves in you and you want to know the craziest thing and the, the part that makes it a unicorn and not a monster is guess and we live we live in the troll culture age okay I'm saying something that's blatantly scary and and off-putting right from the get-go. 
Like my first sentence I say, it put, throws you off balance. Guess how many negative responses I've gotten out of, out of, out of, out of, I would say between 35 and 40,000 personal messages yeah. sent to me. Guess how many have actually been negative? I bet it's, I, I bet it's a surprisingly few amount of people. Um, 10. 10. 10. <laughs> five, five, five were blood related to me. And oh I haven't had one, goodness. haven't had a single one in about a year. That's unreal. Yeah. And unreal. it's, it's nothing but positive, nothing but this house. And, and it's not just, Hey, that's a great story. Cause that, that would be nothing. I don't, that's nothing. It's, it's, Hey, that's cool. And this happened to me. And I'm going to tell you everything that ever happened to me that I've never told anybody. And that's, that's the power. That's unreal. So. Yeah. And coming on to why, I guess I must be speaking for so many different people as well, but I was trying to put into my head clearly why was your video so hard hitting? And I've just shown so many people. I was just thinking, why is this such? Oh, why is this resonating so much? And uh, the thing that it seems to be is that you went to what can only be described as the darkest place. Um, someone can imagine although there's always ways to make things darker but it's one yeah it's, it's unbelievably it's, dark and yeah it's 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 in the darkness with all the darkest things like I, I would I, yeah i i can't yeah. say it's the darkest because trust me there's pain that makes me mine looks not like right. nothing i guess but i it's, guess it's it, that, that once once you're in once you're at that shade of dark yeah. and you can't see how, how much more dark can it go Absolutely. <laughs> and the fact that you were you were you had this intention and then the u-turn that u-turn from being in that place having that intention having a plan to um carry out an attack on a school and then somehow there's a u-turn there and that is unreal and then to see you now um it's, it's just hard to even imagine how you were back then because you seem so you seem well, so far removed for me for me it's i can i can imagine it really is in stark contrast because Mm. it's still going on the other side of my life okay like that that damage never stopped for everybody else in my world on the, in that family except for me because i got out so i can see and look at my brother and see the end result of what happens when that just continues when that, when that cycle of violence and hate just moves on to the next generation so i i literally went through a period the it took me 15 years of solid personal reflection to get to a point where I could be stable in myself. And, and I'm still not there. I still battle depression all the time, but I, I mean, stable in myself to where I didn't feel any of those violent urges, didn't feel any of that destruction, any of that Worked through all of that. And the way I did it was literally working through it. I didn't try to hide it. I didn't try to bandaid it over. I didn't try to find a cure all for everything. I went to the places and people that hurt me and confronted them not to accuse them and not to make them pay not to be like you did this and you need to pay and you need to be punished just to be this is the truth this is what happened and our relationship has fundamentally changed forever from here on out and it was much more cathartic getting it off of my own chest that i don't have to carry that weight anymore i don't have to act like i love you when you destroyed me when i was a kid i don't have to tell you and give you fake hugs when in reality, I despise you because of the damage that you put me through. I can just despise you and walk away. And, and that was really powerful. And then once I started, the biggest 
hugest shift was when I had my first child because I have four kids. The two older ones are my stepkids. My two, I, I don't, in my house, there's no step. There's no half. I have four kids. But, but technically, the two oldest ones are my stepkids. I have a 13-year-old, and then I have an 8-year-old. And so when my 13-year-old was born, she's almost 13, she, um, that really flipped my, the switch in my head. And that gave me something to live for, gave me something to lose. It finally was like, yeah, no, I, I need to be a dad. And to do that, I had to, I literally use my upbringing as a roadmap for how to raise my own kid. I just do the opposite. So when things happen to me, if I got treated a certain way growing up, I do the exact opposite for my own kid. So I make sure to tell my kids every single day I love them to the point where it's annoying. Every, every message I send to my kids, I end with, I love you. <laughs> hmm. And it's it, at least five, six times a day I have to. I got to get a hug. I got to tell you I love you because I, I just have to. And I have to I, – I support them with what they do and I, I tell them that they're worth it. I, 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 the things that did to me, I don't do to them. I see. And, and so I just I, – I tell them. I literally am just going to do the opposite of my my life hmm. and so part of that is you can ask me anything and you can come to me with a problem if i'm doing something and you have a problem with me bring it to me yeah don't think that i'm gonna scream at you because you did i'm gonna respect you because that's what never happened to me hmm. so and, and and i won because my 18 year old daughter is sitting in regis university right now as a first member of my family to go to college and living in the dorms on that I'm not paying a dime for. She earned her own way. She got her own her her her, uh, her um scholarship and all of that herself, and going for a psychology degree. So fantastic! If there's no greater, more tangible testimony to your life than that, I don't know what there is. Yeah, and you I, mentioned I, yeah, it's incredible. You mentioned about your you you modeling um upbringing your children at the moment on your childhood your own personal childhood and how not to do it mm-hmm. um and that is one of the things about because you ted talk of things around seven minutes or something and you're compressing just decades of uh, so much into that short thing and it gives us a glimpse but in terms of your experience growing up as a child could you could you give us a little bit of insight into that? Sure. Um, well, I was really shy and quiet and sensitive. I read comic books. I um, loved comedy. I loved reading. Uh, I loved language. Um, and we moved around a lot, like a lot, a lot. Where I was in a new school every couple of months. I, I went to an average of two to three schools a year. Is was the average going growing up, and. Some years would be more, some years would be less, but that was the average. And sometimes I would go to, I would have really weird effects. Like I would go to some schools multiple times over the course of my growing up. So I would be a new school, new student at the same school three times. So I went to, there's one school in particular, it was Iber Elementary here in Colorado. I went to it for kindergarten. Then I went back for third grade. Then I went back for fifth grade. So I got to be a new student three times at that school. And each time I was the new kid and didn't have any connection to him before because I didn't stay long enough to get any roots any of the times. So I knew the school, but nobody knew me. And it was really disconnecting. So I fell into escapism a lot. And 
my family was really violent, uh, lots of drugs, lots of uh, violence. My, my early, early years, I described as a Stephen King movie. My dad was, my birth dad, his name is Robert. He was extremely violent. Like he was a Vietnam vet. And by the time I was born, he was insane. And he would, him and my mom were doing tons of drugs. And then he was just beating her and raping her in front of me and like beating people up with tire irons. And we spent the first five, four or five years of my life running from better woman shelter to better woman shelter. And we'd, we'd go to this, like, here's the story. We went to a better woman shelter staying at the better woman shelter. He kidnaps me and my brother from the shelter by driving up and like getting us into his car. And then, cause we're only like four or five years old. And he calls my mom says that one of us are dead. The other one's going to be dead. If she doesn't show up at this bar to meet him. And so the better woman shows telling her, no, 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 don't do it. And of course she refuses. And she shows up to this bar to go confront her and get her kids. And he, flips over a table and goes to attack her with a tire iron, one of those big four prong tire irons. And right then, um, the better woman shelter had also called the cops. So a bunch of undercover police officers were also happened to be in the bar. So they whipped out their guns and stopped him. But that's just, that's the kind of family memories that I have. Like it's, I, I, my first memory of my father is laying on my bloody mom, looking up at my dad saying, you just killed my mom because he had just beaten her bloody and unconscious. That's literally the first memory of my father. And then when I was about four or five years old, my mom shipped my brother and I off to Oregon for a year. And I didn't know why at the time. We came back. My dad was gone. My stepdad was there. And it shifted from Scarface or from Stephen King to Scarface. So we went to heavy, heavy crack cocaine use, lots of stealing things. They would steal entire delivery trucks. They were going to a, to a toy store and we'd go sell it all the stuff at a flea market. And it was. I would just say that my relationship with my mom was a lot like the closest analog to my mom and media would be Sarah Connor from Terminator. She that'd be that'd be like my mom, very militant, going from place to place. That is a very so, good uh, character to draw on. I've got an immediate image there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that kind of mom, like the kind the kind of scenarios where we would be in a grocery store somewhere, and my mom would say the word pocket. And that would mean that my brother and I would immediately have to grab the back of her pocket and we'd be exiting that store as fast as we possibly could to get away from the psycho who's chasing us. And, and all she would say would be pocket and she'd say it at a completely level tone and instantly we'd grab the back of her pants and we'd be out the door. And it'd be those kinds of ingrained, we, that fight and flight reflex, we live in that state all the time. And I learned early on that I'm a fight. I am not a freeze. I am not a flight. I'm a fight. And, I grew up and internalized that and everything was really chaotic and violent around me. And I was the younger one. My brother was older. So he became like the adult of the family and I became the peon, you know, the one just, just pushed off. I just want to sit there and read my comic books and not do anything. So they just pushed me off to the side and I, I just internalized that started hating myself more and more. And I was always the smelly kid wherever I went because my clothes were always dirty and ripped and, I was always filthy. When you're told you're worthless enough, you're going to believe it. And you're going to do everything you can to make everybody else agree with you. And that's what I was doing. I started to internalize that, that I'm, I'm the dirty one. I'm the gross one. I'm the monster. And that's all I am is just the, the nothing. And because I was told that a lot, I was constantly told that. I would, I would, have, I would come home to, from school, see my stepdad beating up my mom. Go to try to break that up and then get attacked by my mom because I was breaking up their fight. 
and because I looked like my birth father. And so I've screamed out that I'm a worthless piece of crap. And I need, can I cuss? I don't know if I can cuss. Yeah, absolutely. No worries. Yeah. I get screamed out that I'm a worthless piece of shit and I should be shoved off to the back. And that's uh, after a while, I'm just, okay, if I'm the worthless piece of shit, then I'm the worthless piece of shit and I'm going to be the best one I can be. And I just became that. I, I made myself as unappealing as possible. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, going from school to school, the lack of stability there, I can't imagine how, what you're anchoring yourself with. If you have that kind of life at home, yeah, and, 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 and comic books, comic right. books, superheroes. I, I, that's the only thing I ever kept with me. I, like I had, because of our, our, our living situation, I, there would be a lot of times where everything I would own, let me, let's start at this at the beginning. So I would be, my, my stepdad would steal entire delivery trucks. Okay. So he would take, I would have for Christmas, I'd get every Thundercats, every He-Man toy, every GI Joe toy. Okay. I'd have all the whole play sets and everything. So I'd have this big Christmas. And then two months later, I'd get uh, someone waking me up at three o'clock in the morning, throwing a duffel bag at me to say, grab everything I can. We need to get out of here as fast as we can. And I'd have 15 minutes to grab everything I possibly could put it in that duffel bag. And then we're gone. And I never see any of that stuff again. And so nothing was ever permanent. And the only things I ever saved and put in that duffel bag were my comic books. So all the toys and stuff that all my material things vanished and none of that stuff ever stayed at all. But I kept my comic books with me all the time. I'd carry around milk crates of comic books with me. And, and that was my big escape. And even to this day, I still tell my kids to this day that none of the stuff in this house matters. I can, all this stuff, if it, if it evaporates, I'll, I can replace it all with no problem because I don't look at material things that way. Mm. Like I don't, there's nothing permanent. There's none, none of this is going to stay. Mm. The only thing that matters is the people I care about. So. Okay. Yeah. So you had basically to find some form of escapism and kind of wrap that around you as best mm-hmm. as you could. Um, with the evolution of the violence and things in your family, did did it ju- did it just relentlessly continue all the way yeah, through? Yeah, it was. It was. It's. Re- it was relentless even to this day. Like right. it's. It's. It just was relentless all the way through. For I, there just wasn't any. My best friend Mike. I. I had a best friend Mike who I met him when I was twelve years old. He was ten. And we've been best friends for 30 years. He never spent the night at my house. He never came over to have dinner. He never, I never brought a girlfriend home. I never, because if I did, there'd be a fight. If I, if I brought someone home, there would be fighting going on and there'd be, or there'd be massive drugs or there'd be a gigantic screaming party that would end up in a gigantic fight or there'd be the cops called or there'd be so one of a thousand disasters that would happen. And so it wasn't, I didn't have a safe spot. Like I didn't have, like you said, that what guy could have that grounded me. I didn't have a grounding except for that comic books. I would literally sit in my, my living room of whatever house I was in. Cause I most likely didn't have a bedroom and would sit there and be reading my super, my comic books while my parents are beating each other up or my brother is, is fighting with my stepdad or they're rocking up crack like 15 feet from me. Like, uh, that was just the only I had to create my own safe areas wherever I was. And, and it's after a while you stop wanting to fight against it and you start wanting to just, okay, if I'm the, 
The only way I could I could think of to get people to leave me alone and not pick on me all the time was to become scary, to become angry. And at the same time, my puberty hit and I grew and I got big and I, I became, I was six foot, 300 pounds by the time I was 17 years old. And at that, I'm almost six foot, 5'11". I'm, I stopped growing at that. I'm still 5'11". So I've been this size since I was about 16, 17 years old. And I was actually bigger because I've lost weight. Um, but the that I got, I decided to be scary. I decided to be. They're going to just leave me alone. So I learned martial arts. I I made myself as unappealing and as angry as possible, and just pushed everybody away that I possibly could. And so that violence and that um, tension from your household did that. How did that play out in your life at school? Did it spill out into interactions with it, classmates and things it did i i i was bullied a lot i, I picked got picked on a lot so i would hide weapons around me all the time um, actual actual weapons actual weapons like not not guns but like knives sticks brass knuckles right. um things things that i could pull out immediately in a fight and i would stay right around where those were like i would stash a pair of brass knuckles in a tree stump and then on my lunch break, I would just sit on that tree stump the whole time. That if I, if, because at any given time, I might get attacked because the, the, I would, I was, I would seem to be constantly fighting with bullies, constantly fighting with either the guys who didn't like it because I wrote poetry and I would write for the, for their girlfriends and they, they would get jealous or whatever. Like I was the sensitive shy kid. So I would sit there, and write poetry and I'd read comic books and, and that was the, what I would do jock guys didn't like that and this was at a time when superheroes were not only cool where they actively made you less cool so it was like that was just all added on to it and it's it just got un, uh, so oppressive that i just decided oh, you know what i'm just going to become the biggest scariest angriest person possible and i turned into i was the mosh pit when I went to a concert, I would I would just knock over the entire crowd. I'd go to spend all night long at a metal show, or I would, because I spent my life fighting. I spent my entire life fighting. So in a in a high school fight, I had I, I was cutthroat. I I spent my my growing up fighting forty year old men. You know, like I I it was I looked at the regular teen violence in a whole different level. With the, so it was becoming that scary angry guy to my peers was surprisingly easy. Because when you spend your life in that violence, just open it up. Just, all right, this is what I do. Okay, let, you want to come into my world? This is my world. And it, it, but it, it was really, really isolating. Pushed everybody away, and pushed. And the only I would describe my my life a lot back then, like it was a movie that I was not a star in. Like it was just my life was just passing me by, and I was just watching it. And I didn't have any real control over it. I didn't have any agency over what was happening at all. And then I, that's when I figured out about cutting myself when I was like 13, 14 years old that in all that, I describe it as like a tsunami of anger, like this big, like hurricane of pain that I was living in. Like I, at any given moment, my whole world could get destroyed. And I was living in this constant fight or flight and I never had any control over any of those emotions. But when I cut myself, I did. When I when I would slice my arm open and it would make myself bleed, I controlled that. And that was even though it was hurtful and negative, it was mine. And 
it's really strange how the more you stay in that dark area, that dark becomes your normal. And anything that tries to intrude on it and say, I felt I felt I was so such a horrible person, so destructive, so so terrible. Anybody that would try to tell me that I was good, that's the lie. Th- those are the ones that are lying because I'm obviously a monster and I'm broken. So if you like me, then you're something's wrong with you. And that's how I looked at myself at that time. And did so, people, cutting, sorry, did people were there people around you who were giving you these more positive sort of feedbacks okay, and messages? Okay, okay occasionally very very few but occasionally there'd be like yeah a, a girl somewhere that would be like you know you're really not you're a sweet guy i'm like yeah no you don't know me if you knew me you'd hate me okay you know and it's because the rest of my world reinforced that constantly that i'm just a broken monster that doesn't deserve nothing but shit and you might see the nice part of me now but you don't know the rest of my world and if you knew it you you just run away screaming and that's the way you 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 feed that when you're in that spot. You 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 internalize that darkness so much that it becomes you, and it it became my persona. And anything that challenged that was was bad. It was wrong, and was they didn't have all the information, you know. And and I I just started spiraling down and more and more. The violence violence at home got worse and worse as I got older, as I became a teenager, and my brother who's two years older than me. So as we both became teenagers, the violence and drugs at home just got so, so bad. And I couldn't take it. I couldn't take coming home and fighting constantly. And, and so I ran away, moved out, whatever you want to call it. What happened, not living at home when you were 15 years old. So living on the streets, however, however you were run away or move out, however we wanted to describe that, but that's what happened. And I spent almost a year homeless. And living on either my girlfriend's driveway or my the park behind the school. Because that's – I had girlfriends and I had what would be described as friends. But you have to think they weren't actually friends. They were what I would consult, call now disaster groupies. They wanted to watch the car crash. They wanted to live vicariously through me. Nobody off the, in that group was trying to pull me off of any legends. Nobody in that group was trying to pull me back from anything. They were just like, oh my God, you're the most evil person I've ever met. You're the, you're the, you're the darkest person I've ever seen. So I'm going to just be around you all the time because it's fascinating. That kind of, that kind of pain can be, you can live vicariously through it. And that's that I call them now disaster groupies. And so yeah. a weird way, a weird fact is I never had a lack of girlfriends. I never had a lack of like people around me. They just were not, it was the most negative and toxic friend groups you could ever have. They didn't have your best interests at heart, really. It was just well, and drawn they did, to you. It, exactly. And they didn't have their own best interests at heart either. It was a bunch of hurt and depressed kids mm. trying to figure out depression with no guidance. Like we would sit around and talk and instead of doing like fantasy football, instead of talking about like, what teams we liked in sports or what, what shows we liked on TV. We talk about killing people. We talk about like, if you were going to kill 20 people, how would you do it? And if you were going to sue a big place, where would you go? And they would like, that would be our, our fiction of the group and our fantasy of the whole thing. And so I'm living on the streets. I've spent months bouncing from gravel driveway to outside of a field to the, the shed of my friend's house. And I've, I've, this whole time, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse. The only thing I have is cutting myself and taking large amounts of LSD. 
I was tripping a lot of acid at the time. That was I didn't I didn't do any other drugs, but I had was doing a large amount of LSD, large amount of, of uh, hallucinogens, and I. So the earlier friend I mentioned, Mike, he had been kind of my safe base this whole time. I met him when I was twelve, and he was ten. We met over comic books, and we just bonded over that. And he had a totally opposite life of mine. So we had a really stable family. They loved each other a lot. They never had any huge fights. They still live in that same house they're in to this day. Like it's the like a really stable, normal family. And he was always kind of like my safe spot. And in the back of his house, he had a tool shed. It was kind of like a, a storage shed. And since his family didn't really let me stay in the house very much because I was filthy and I was a bad influence and I was I, I legitimately I was just a bad person to be around at that time. Um so he would let me sleep in his tool shed and he would sneak me out dinner and he would like sneak me out food and, and I would stay there. And the shed had this big recliner in it, like this big gray recliner and the, the roof had these like slats. It was like a like wood slat roof, like gaps in it. So the rain would come down all the time. And so I finally got to where I had, it was coming up, it was starting to be winter. And so rain's coming down really bad. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And I'm in Mike's shed and I'm cutting myself really bad and I'm like pooling blood underneath me. And I think like, I, I got to do something. I got to get myself help somehow. And I, over the years, social services had tried to intervene a couple of times. Those were the couple of the reasons why we had vanished and moved from place to place. Social services had found us. And we need, we need to escape because it's either social services or cops or there was some authority figure that sees us or we're getting evicted or, but so I knew the social services had a, had intervened a couple times in my life, and I'd tried to intervene at least. And so the next morning, I got up and I knocked on Mike's back door, and I got his phone book, and I looked up the number for the social services office, and I set an appointment meeting for later that afternoon. And by the time I got there, they didn't just bring me in; they had also called my mom, and so my mom was there too. And I sit down at the table, and I produce a bloody razor blade one of the like, square razor blades you put in a box cutter. And I, I throw that on the table, fresh cuts on my arm. I say, this is, because he has, what's your problem? So I pull the, produce the razor blade. So, well, this is my problem. And I start telling her that I'm, I'm hurting myself. I'm sleeping in this field. I feel like worthless. I feel like nothing. And my mom, who spent her entire life, uh, my entire life at least, lying and telling the authorities whatever they needed to so she could get out of there and knowing exactly what to say. She got them to believe that I was just making it all up and it was all just for attention and that I was just doing it for just, just to get a rise out of people. And they sent me home with her. And then as they sent me home with her, we're driving away. We get just right, pull out right away. And she turns to me and this evil snarl on her face. She says, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. My, my brain just broke. And I fully, all of that time that I was kind of like, I'm, I'm the dark person. I ran right into that. You think I'm the monster. I'm going to be the monster now. I'm going to burn down every single thing in my world. A couple months go by and that darkness just keeps on getting worse and worse. And I'm destroying every single thing in my world. I'm burning everything down. Okay. I'm just breaking everything. And it finally gets to where I'm in the field behind Casa Benita. And I have, have nothing. It's the, the midwinter now, and I have just nothing at all. And I'm like, I, I'm going to die. 
And I think I, I got to do something again. I, I Last time I warned them I was coming and they called my mom in. So I'm not going to warn them this time. And I knew across the street from my high school, there was a building that said mental health. And it just had a sign on it that said mental health. And I didn't know what it did, but it had a, a therapist in it. And, or I thought it, I hoped it did. And so I go there the next day and I knock on the door and I'm like, I need to see somebody. And they bring me in and I see a therapist or a, a counselor or something. And it's this young, like 20 something woman. And she's, again, I produce a bladed razor blade and I'm like, I, I show her the fresh cuts on my arm. I'm like, I, I, I tried last time. Nobody's helping me. I need help. I need, I need somebody. And I have a hard time remembering exactly what she said to me because the only thing that sticks out is the last thing that she said to me. And that is, she looked at me. I just remember her saying, I'm sorry that I can't help you right now. There's nothing I can do for you. And I walked out of that room. And walked out of that door and like, I, I tried twice. I got nothing. I, I, I literally shattered everything in my brain just shattered. And that whole tsunami that I was been talking about, that tsunami of anger and pain that I was living in at the bottom of that, something really weird happens. It gets really calm and quiet and still because when you don't have anything left to live for and you don't really have anything left to fight about and you don't have anything left to care about at all then there's nothing left to fight about and there's nothing left to hurt you. So you remember and that sort of transition then from going, I, I remember it vividly. I remember breaking, walking out of there and just like, okay, that's, I, if that's it, then that's it. I'm done. And all of those, all of those fantasies that I had been talking about with my friends, that that gaming of well, who are you going to kill? All that just crystallized, crystallized in just an instant that, I have the plans. I know what I would do. I, I'm either going to attack my school or the mall food court. I mean, it, that's, those are the only two places I'm going to go. And it's, it, 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 I knew across the street from my school, there was, or across the street from the park, there next to my school, there was gangbangers used to hang out over there. And they knew me because I was living in the field and I was living in the park. And like, they knew I wasn't a narc or anything. And they had sold drugs to my family. Like they, this was mid nineties. So gangbangers were really prevalent. It was like boys in the hood era. And so, um, the, I, they had brought guns to school before they'd shown them off before. Like I knew they had access to firearms. And so I went up to him like, all right, I, I want a gun. Hopefully one that shoots a lot of people. And he goes like, yeah, dude, sure. Give me an ounce. I'm like, okay, cool. Again, mid nineties. So price scale, we're talking six, $700. Okay. So this is, this is much more expensive than it is these days. Yeah. I've had people be like, really dude, an ounce for a gun? Like, yeah. In the nineties, it was way more expensive. Oh man. And, um, so I, and that was really easy to get too, cause druggy family. I went to my house and there was a good dude with four or five ounces sleeping on my floor. And I just stole one of those ounces and took it to the guy. And, uh, I brought it to him the next day and he's like, all right, give me three days, give me three days and I'll have that for you. And so I was waiting. And the instant I got the gun, I was going to attack. The only difference between a mall food court and my high school food court would have been time of day. And then it would have been on. So I have a, a question that I'd like to segue in from one of the listeners about that choice of the school or the food court. So there were many different ways that you could have expressed what you were feeling at the time and i think you've previously described it as sort of annihilation or just mm -hmm. going completely into this sort of darkness with no 
nothing to annihilation. Annihilation is a very good word for it. Yeah. Mm. And what was the reason that you you chose a school or a food court? Was it just because of the availability? Was it just something that came to mind? Or? It was. It was the fact that that's where I was at a lot. Okay. Um, so it was availability, uh, familiarity. Um, it was a massive amount of damage in the shortest amount of time. Um, and one thing that it wasn't was soft targets because the school had an, had multiple armed police officers stationed in the school at all times. So that it wasn't like there was a lack of guards that was just factored into the plan. I was planning on dying by suicide by cop. So I was planning on doing as much damage as I could and then having them kill me. And that was, so it wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a place where I could get through security and take out as many people without security seeing me. Security was just part of the thing. And so, and that was a fact that was also in the, um, the mall food court that actually had a police station in the mall food court. There was a mini police station, like two doors down from the food court. Cause most malls those days had police station inside the mall. Um, and so it was the, the goal for my attack wasn't about the people. It wasn't about killing the other people. It was about, honestly, it was about attacking my parents, but not by hurting them physically, but by making them have created a monster, making them deal with making me. Okay. That's that. I think that's a really important distinguishing point because it's something that has, and I suppose you can get into this a bit later, that's okay. Something that's baffled, and caused so much questioning when a shooting does occur. And I don't think, um, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong later, of course, but it doesn't seem like there's a one answer of why people do this. And that, Not at all. And, uh, I, and I think that one of the problems that we have as onlookers to these events is that we try to put logic onto it. Yes. We you try to impose logic onto an illogical situation after the fact, and you just can't do that. People have told me before, well, how come if you didn't get a gun, how come you didn't get a bomb or you didn't get a car? How come you didn't do some other way? If you wanted to kill, you'd really find a way. No, I was an insane kid in an insane situation. And when my when that shifted, my world just shifted. My my attention went more inward instead of outward, and it, it just changed. That's not – you can't look at it with a logical, reasoned, tactical mind when you're dealing with a teenager who just wants to cry out and hurt. That's it's that you're not dealing with a logical mind and it's the reasons very well might be personal. The, like it, like with mine, my, my reasoning, if I were to walk into that school and shoot 10 kids, okay, that would have damaged every one of those 10 kids lives, but it would not have been directed at those 10 kids. It would have been directed at myself and all of that other damage would have simply been ancillary. And that sounds really cold to talk about it like that. And I don't mean it to be cold or disrespectful at all. But when you're looking at these things, you have to look at it with a slightly clinical eye that these kids have, what, what are they actually thinking from their, from their own perspective? You know, because one of the problems that we have in general as a society is trying to put our own perspectives into the situation. We're trying to impose what we think on the other person. That if you are a liberal, you're going to think a certain way. If you're a conservative, you're going to think a certain way. That if you are, what is a school shooter look like? If honestly, and I've said it before, if you think there's a profile for a school shooter, that's a problem because there's not. There's just pain. There's just pain, and pain has a, a wide variety of manifestations. And while there is a very small group 
very small segment that will actually follow through on that attack. Very, very small amount of people that will actually commit those attacks, even in the amount that it's increasing these days, where it seems that we have an attack every day or so. That's still a very, very small amount of people that are actually following through on these attacks. But there's a massive amount of people that are in that gray area that could and that feel like they might and that feel like that maybe they deserve to and that maybe they maybe they're worthless enough that maybe they that no one cares about them. And that that group of people, those are the ones we can reach. Those are the ones that, that give love to the people that you think deserve it the least because they need it the most. And sometimes that person is yourself. Mm. So you, you essentially at this pinnacle of, yeah, as I mentioned, you previously described annihilation and it sounds like there was just a degree of momentum that built. And the, the yeah. fascinating thing is that you actually reached out, um, at least on two occasions, very yeah. sincerely. And yeah. uh, so there was part of you that was still hanging on, as you mentioned, but then you go into this annihilation. And what 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 happened after that once you were waiting for the gun? Well, luckily, I wasn't alone in that. I I went to Mike's house. And looking back on it, I think that I was in that spot of giving things or saying goodbye. Like like closing off the chapter and, and trying to say goodbye to my best friend. I didn't think that at the time, but I, but looking back, I think that's what I was doing. And I went to Mike's house and everybody else in my world, I was a monster. I was broken and everybody else was either trying to fix me or be afraid of me. And Mike wasn't either of that. Mike just brought me inside and was like, dude, you're okay. You're not a monster. You're just a, you're a good kid going through a shit world. He told me that he's told me that so many times over the years that I should have that on a t-shirt from him. He said that you dude, you're just a good kid going through a shit world that these uh, it's okay. It's understandable to feel the way that you are going through the stuff that you're going through, but you're not broken. You're not a monster. You don't have to do any of these things. And he didn't know what I was doing. He just thought would think talking about, think about talking about hurting myself. He had no idea what I was planning, but that stopped it. I, instead of going to get the gun, I stayed with him all weekend. And I sat with him, had a meal, had a shower. He treated me like I was a person when I didn't even feel like I was a human. And when you don't feel human at all, being treated like a person will change your entire world. Sometimes all it takes is just a hug and someone saying you're okay. And he did. And still does to this day. Still my best friend to this day. And it's it changed my life. That's the... I think that's the fascinating thing is just the simplicity of one of your friends treating you like a regular person and saying something to you that was just com uh, him trying to comfort you and just giving you that time and, and that attention. And that that averted something yeah. that could have been unbelievable, unbelievably traumatic for so many people. Um yeah, and he had he had no idea until I came out with my story. He had no idea about it. Wow. He, okay. He didn't know until I came and started talking about it, and he knew he knew the damage that I was going through, and he knew all the pain. He was my best friend for years, so he was the only one that knew about like all about my family and all about my mom and all of that stuff. Mm. That so he knew the, the damage of what put me there, and he's one of the strongest forces of why I get to do what I do now because. He stood right next to me. So whenever anybody questions me these days, they're like, really? Are you sure? He's like, no, nah, no, nah, that's real. 
<laughs> not no bullshit here, dude. This stuff is real. Yeah. So. There was also something about your nineteenth birthday, I think. Yeah. That that is so I that the my even though I was out of that destructive phase and I was out of that spot where I wanted to hurt people, my life situation didn't change. That that shit that I was living in, that was still my my shit that I was living in. I I still had to live in the field. I still had to deal with the crazy family. I still had to deal with that violence. None of that changed. The only thing that changed was my outlook on myself. So it shifted more inward and I got more depressed. And coming up to my 19th birthday, I was planning on killing myself. It was that I was, that's when I was in the field behind Casa Bonita and I had stolen a bunch of drugs. I had gotten a bunch of cocaine, a bunch of LSD and stolen a bunch of pills from my mom. I got the cocaine and pills from my mom. Um, and I was going to take them all in the field behind Casa Bonita and kill myself. And during the day, I, since I had had people in my life who had made interventions in the past, like Mike had intervened, I was doing my best to not even act like I was depressed, to not even act like anything was different. Like I didn't want anybody to save me. I wanted to just disappear. And so I, during, during the day I went and hung out with Mike and was that acting normal. And Mike's a very social guy. Okay. So Mike has a social circle of his own and I was always the necessary evil. Okay. So if you wanted to hang out with Mike, you had to put up with me. So, cause, cause I wasn't the one that was going to get kicked out. So that was, he had a group of friends that would, they would put up with me. And then one of them was this girl, Amber, and she was actually really friendly with me, but she was definitely his friend. She wasn't my friend. She was his friend, but she was really good with me. She was friendly, nothing, nothing bad at all. And so he's, we would go over to her house and like watch a movie and like hang out, do whatever. And just a couple hours and then we'd leave. And he's like, okay, we're going to kick it at Amber's house today. Like, okay, cool. Thinking nothing of it. Thinking we're going to do the same thing. Go sit down, maybe listen to an album and then we'd leave. And we get there. And that wasn't what happened at all. Instead, it was actually a surprise birthday party for me. And I walked into a group of about 14 people, all with happy birthday for me. And they made me a blueberry peach pie. And I spent the night and the weekend with people who love me instead of going to the field. And I went to the bathroom and I dumped all my drugs I had in my pocket down the toilet. And that was the last time I ever tried to kill myself. And Amber's, Amber's also one of my best friends to this day. I can see that even the the power of that event, even so many years later, I can see how much it has stayed with you there. Yeah. And those two particular moments in your life where Mike and Amber and the birthday party, <laughs> the the fact that they've had such a profound impact upon changing what you were going to do just shows the absolute contrast of what you must have been used to prior to that. Yeah. Yeah. It was night and day, mm. night and day. I had never had a birthday party ever. I, I had never had a party mm. and I had never, I had never had anybody celebrate for me and that just blew me away. Mm. Still, like I said, she's still one of my best friends to this day. I still tell her you saved my life. Hmm. I have just thought you mentioned that when you were growing up, you had a large degree of self-loathing and being told that repeatedly by the people who were supposed to be closest to you 
must have just amplified that as well how how do you how do you view yourself now do you still have any of that residual feeling sometimes i i still fight against self-worth issues sometimes um not nearly to that extent at all um it's it's a different creature these days entirely um i am proud and confident of who i am as a man and as a father and as a person um sometimes i feel like i need to contribute more to my relationship or i need to contribute more to my family um sometimes i feel isolated because of what i'm doing but it's an entirely different thing now I, i am extremely proud of me because not only have I managed to tell my story and somehow help other people. But at the same time, I also completely changed myself physically. Um, yeah, I, I've noticed. Yeah, I, I have. So in, at, in no, November, let's see, March of 2017, I weighed myself and I was 468 pounds. And I was so big, I couldn't even walk across a room without finding somewhere to sit. And now I sit at 268 pounds and I walk routinely 10, 12 miles a day just for fun, just because I feel like going for a walk. And it's, it has changed myself, my life completely. I am fundamentally now 100% a different person than I was three years ago in wow. every single possible. Wow. Because of the physical transformation. Because of the physical transformation and the mental transformation. And the mental. I, I spent my life. I spent my life hating myself. I spent my entire life thinking that I was going to, this was going to be a negative mark. That if anybody ever found out about me, that they would hate me. That if anybody ever found out about the truth about my story, that they would despise me. And instead, the outpouring of positivity and love have, has been so overwhelming and consistent and uplifting. I started a positivity group called You Are Not Alone. It's on Facebook. And it's entirely based on the, I started it from the people who responded to me, all those messages that I messaged, mentioned earlier, I, I told the people that I'm starting a group for us and we're all going to get together and talk about these things. And so it's called, you are not alone, all one word with the, all the words capitalized, you are not alone. And it is up to almost 2,100 members in 72 countries. And it has so far, I'm, I normally don't like to brag about what I do, but this part I brag all the time. So far, I'm up to having successfully prevented 11 suicides and three school shootings and helped two people leave white nationalism. That's even higher than when I last heard you mention about this. So that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. We, we, we've had a, the holidays are a bit of an intense time. So there's been a lot of people coming to the messing group, coming to the group looking for support that need it right now in this extremely intense emotional time and they've been able to find it including myself not not on the suicidal level at all but depression i've I've just recently been having a couple bouts of depression and it's been a very big support group for me too because it's it's hard sometimes to do this it's hard for me personally it's 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 odd because it's it's weird to talk about but heck i talk about everything my wife is the nicest person in the world She's literally the nicest person I've ever met. Sweetest person in the world. I have always been an asshole. I've always been the guy that was kind of an asshole to growing and to everybody. And now I get worldwide attention for being nice. And I feel bad that I, I, I just feel bad. 
And it, I feel that she should be getting more of the attention because she's a lot of the reason why I'm being able to do what I do. And it's a really odd, like, I had to block my family, my mom, my brother, my all that side of the family. I had to block them all on social media because of constant attacks. Um, um, and so I, I, I miss them, even though it's toxic. That's how they have, that's how things have been left with your brother and, and your, your mom then, is it? And my mom. Oh. Yeah, they. they uh, the last time I spoke to my mom was the day I got a proof of my TED talk. She called me and said that I was indeed a worthless piece of shit and should be dead. And that was the last time I spoke to her. And every now and then I get messages on on social media about how could you do this? How could you say these things? And it's always it's it's never that I'm lying. It's always how could you talk about this stuff in public? And so I my response has always been I'll stop the instant you tell me one thing I say that's not the truth. And if you're upset about me talking about the truth, what happened to me 25 years ago, but you're not paying attention to the man I am today, then I'm not the one that has the problem. Mm, very, very, very fair thing to say back. The The other thing that I just wanted to ask about was you have init initially told us that um, obviously Mike and Amber were instrumental in changing your direction. And through the process, speaking to your the, the people in your life who were involved negatively and, and sort of telling them how you felt and telling them the impact that you had, as well as becoming a father, having a family, these two things sound like massive um, parts of this transformation. But to go from where you were to where you are now, which to me seems just night and day, as you've already said, what else have you had to do? Have you specifically? How have you gone through these? Uh, what would it be about twenty years or so? Twenty five years you mentioned. Mm -hmm. how, how, well, how have you done it? Well, the, what my my personal philosophy is the way out is through, and so the more you learn about something, the less it's going to hurt you, and the less it's going to make you afraid. And so I just examine it all. I go through all of it, and I don't shy away. Part part of and it's one advantage I think I have, and it's a weird way to get the advantage. But I, spending my entire life hating myself made me now not have the ability to get embarrassed. Like I just don't have it. I I, it, I spent so many years that if you had an insult, I had a better insult than you did. So there, the, I just don't have it in me to get embarrassed about anything at all. Like I just don't get embarrassed, and so talking about these things i can just talk about anything personal and it doesn't i don't care who's gonna judge me because i judged myself for decades worse than anybody ever could and i am now really proud of me because i have a daughter who's sitting in college and i have a son who's going to be a chef and i have another daughter who loves making rainbows and i my entire goal in life is to build the best people I possibly can. And I think I did. So, and, and I've managed to legitimately be able to say that by talking about my own past, I've helped people get out and not hurt themselves. Mm. And I won. Yeah. Did you ever need any sort of professional input through that period of time? Because I, I, I didn't, I think I did, but I never got it. Part of my problem with therapy Part of my problem with my problem with therapy was that I was really intelligent and I loved psychology as a subject. So I 
would as a teenager i would i one of my times that i was moving from place to place i lived in a house that had a whole bunch of psychology textbooks and i read them all just for fun and so when i would meet therapists partly because of my ego partly because of self-destructive tendencies if you didn't have, know your game and if you weren't up on your stuff i wasn't paying attention to you and that self-defeating kind of attitude really hindered my own progress when it came to that stuff. So it took up until it took up until adulthood before I could really access therapy on a, on an actual level. Um, and I, I am in it now. Um, both actually technically I'm not right now, but that's only because I'm shifting therapists for scheduling reasons, not because of anything else. I have, because I got a job working at Starbucks, I have to figure out one for fits my schedule, but I'm in therapy now because it's to both, fully absorb all of everything that happened to me and to absorb what's going through me now because this this whole adventure I'm on now is an entirely different thing than I could ever it's hard to find anybody that can even comprehend what it is that happens because I'll be like I work at a Starbucks so I'll be working and I'll get an email from a 17 year old in France who wants to hurt herself themselves or a 40-year-old CEO who spent all night long in a depressed stupor and really just needs someone to talk to. And it's, I, I just, I, I, I have a policy that if you come contact me and you give me more than, hi, how are you? You give me some of you, I'm going to give you some of me. Mm. So I've personally responded to 98% of every message that's come to me. Wow. I, it, it must be such a weird thing. I mean, even the our conversation right now, I'm a guy in the UK and I emailed you and, and you responded to me and said, yeah, I'm up for having a chat. And now here we are yeah. over the internet having this conversation and you're basically answering any questions I have for you. You've never met me before about literally the most difficult things that you've been through in your life. Doing that um, for a while is, it must be a bizarre experience. It's, it's really bizarre. And that's why I, I, I have to find those places where I can have conversations with people that aren't, and I don't mean this to sound at all egotistical, but because I have a TED talk with over 10 million views, I have to use this terminology. I, I have to find people, contact people that aren't either fans or patients. I, <laughs> you need to, I, I don't, I, that aren't looking to me for help and aren't looking to congratulate me. I want regular conversations. So that's that's the biggest thing I've been craving recently, and I get it a lot at my job. So that's I really like my job a lot. Okay. So, uh, have you had anyone come up and recognize you while you've been at work? About about ten. Oh really? Oh right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it, it's it's happened in my local area. It, it, my the TED talk hit really hard, and then I was on local news like twenty times. Oh, so okay, the local area. I if I go to the grocery store, I get recognized. Oh well, okay. So, it's it's a bit odd. Yeah, and and it's not and and it, what's really odd is it's not the recognizing you would think for like celebrity recognizing, you yeah. know, to use the term. It's people come up to me like, "Hi, can I tell you about what happened to me with my dad?" Oh man, that must be overwhelming. And it's it's the most intense thing in the world. Yeah. I have grown. I'll, I I would. There have been nights where I will go to the grocery store. And with my wife to go shopping and end up hugging a 40, 35 year old muscle bound guy who's breaking down in tears, hugging me because he never was able to talk about his depression before. 
in the middle of the, the milk aisle. Like it's because the, the, the thing that I found is that if you give someone the, the room to talk about it <clears throat> and you, I think it's giving the room to talk about it combined with the fact that like, if you go to AA, you want to have a therapist that's actually been an alcoholic. So people know that I'm not faking the funk. So when they come, when they come to talk to me about these things, you give them a place to talk about it. You give them someone who knows, and they know that when they say depression, I'm not going to bullshit. And they know that I'm not going to bullshit them. They run to it. And the barriers that you would think that we put up to, to separate us as a society, those evaporate. Those don't even exist for me right now. Like I'll have the same conversation with a homeless guy as I will with the CEO of a major corporation. And I'll have them 15 minutes apart from each other because that there is no difference between the pain of <clears throat> the pain that I was feeling when I was in that spot is fundamentally the same as the, the pain that a model feels before she's going to her shoot, who's throwing up in her car. That is the same pain it, on the surface. It's diametrically opposed. But underneath, it's the exact same thing. And because of that, it's, it lets communication happen on a, on a level that you would never even imagine. And I've had ultra-conservative, ultra-liberal, ultra-religious, super-atheist. It doesn't matter. None of that barriers matter. I'm personally very much an atheist. Okay? And I, a couple months ago, went and spoke to 500 ultra religious school nurses in Mississippi. They had one of the deepest, most heartwarming evenings of my life, being able to connect on that personal level to break down those barriers of what they think an atheist is and what they think a school shooter is and, and all of these, these things and being able to see that mental health isn't when you say mental health, it's this big gray amorphous blob. And it's this big thing that you can't wrap your mind around. You can't wrap your hands around. You can't grasp it. So there's, you get lost in the haze. My name is Aaron Stark. I felt like I was worthless because I was told I was worthless my entire life. And I felt like I was a monster, but I'm a good guy and I've made it through it. And you can too. And that's the whole message I got. It's you've just you, you've embodied and identified part of the human experience that nobody can escape everyone has some experience of and that is as you mentioned this pain that people go through and people just see that and as you as you say it breaks down those barriers because nobody nobody's immune to it um, yeah nobody yeah. nobody I, and, and and literally nobody i was just just two weeks ago i flew out to new york to be on a, na a major talk show okay i was on the tamarind hall show oh. and so i got to Got to go to it was it's right it was on right after Good Morning America right before the View so we're like talking thirty million housewives no pressure okay? no pressure at all <laughs> and so but for me it was great because I had never been to New York City I've always wanted to go there so I got to go spend an, a weekend right in the Upper West Side of Manhattan right next to Times Square wow. so I had a cool time but I'm on the set of the TV show these people deal with celebrities and, and things all day long and I'm having the PAs behind the scenes hug me and crying oh, I'm having man. people that that deal with the talk to the tomorrow. They're going to talk to Denzel Washington today. They're hugging me, telling me about how their wife is hurting their feelings. Oh my goodness. And it's, it's because those barriers just don't exist. They just mm. don't. That's unbelievable. It, it's, it's the most amazing and cathartic thing. That's why I don't care about any fame. I don't care about any money. I don't care about anything that ever comes to me. I've already won a thousand times over. 
And if I can help even one more person see that they're worth it and find a way out of that darkness, I'm going to keep on going with this till the wheels fall off. Right. I'm, I'm just in a thousand percent. It's fantastic. And you've mentioned to people who are in these sorts of situations where they are struggling. I've heard you mention elsewhere that there is, there is a lot to be said for the ability to persevere and to just keep going and to look just ahead. keep going yes please the the i have something i say to people that come to me all the time just keep walking today you're going to take one step then tomorrow you take two steps because you tried hard the next day you try really hard you take three steps but then you slide back you take you fall back a couple steps the next day you walk two more steps each day you're only moving a little tiny bit but you turn around and you look and you've walked a lot you just didn't notice it at the time because when you're in that darkness it's really hard to see the movement but if you just keep going, you're going to make it. The only way out of this is through. The, the, you, if there's light at the end of the tunnel, the, the only constant in life is change. The only thing that's absolutely certain is that tomorrow is going to be different than today. Might, be, might not be better, might not be worse. It's going to be different. So you can either adapt with those changes and move with them, or you can fight against them. If you fight against the changes, it's going to wear you down. It's going to beat you down like a wave rush coming on an ocean, just break you down and turn you into sand. But you can adapt with it. You can move with those waters and you can just shift with the change and grow with it because that's all that there really is, is change. Just keep going. The way out is through. Fantastic. That, I think, is an excellent message just to wrap up our conversation with. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. and to Thank you, all- Julian. It's been so much fun. It's been a real pleasure. Um, to all those people out there who may be wanting to find a group of like-minded people i will link you are not alone go and check it out everybody it sounds like it's doing amazing things it's it's got members all over the world and it's full of professionals so it's got doctors and therapists and trauma specialists and and people who actually could give real help and one of the coolest things i found is that Therapists get frustrated because in a therapeutic setting, they have mandatory triggers. So if someone says something, they have to mandatorily report and they have, to, they have certain triggers they have to, that have to jump into place. This gives them a spot where they can give some kind of advice without so much mandatory triggers and so much mandatory oversight over them that lets them have a little bit more humanness to the effort. And it, and it, it, it helps a lot. I really – I. On my next level of this, I want to work to try to make something like that real, like a, a, a concrete thing, because I think that's what we need the most is some buffer area that we can help before between counseling and, and the person. We need an area that can stop because it gets scary. Absolutely. So. Sounds like watch this space then something. Yeah. Yeah. Watch this space. Yeah. More coming. Very excited. Thank you so much, Aaron. And um Thank you so much, Julian. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Take care. You too. Thank you very much for listening. And make sure you go and check out Aaron's Facebook group, You Are Not Alone. I'd really appreciate it also if you could share this episode with anybody. And if you follow along with the podcast, leave a rating or a comment. And as always, I'd love to hear from any of you as well. So if you'd like to get in touch, my email address is julian at strongermedicine.com. Until next time. Thanks very much and take care.